Good morning, Fellowship Fayetteville, my early morning risers. Welcome. Good morning, my name is David. This is Joanna, this is Andrew, and this is Jacob. And uh, we don't give them much credit, but there's a team in the back over here. They typically get attention when something goes wrong. But everybody on this stage and back here, we're here super early this morning. So can you, can you thank them with me? Can we just say thank you to all the volunteers? You in the back, you're awesome. We're so thankful for you and your team. Hey, this morning we're gonna sing to our Father. And so as we begin, would you stand together with us? Let's begin our time by reading out loud together the Lord's Prayer from Matthew chapter six. Let's read this together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So this morning, let's sing to our Heavenly Father. Yeah. 
Let's sing that again together. Praise God. Every voice. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. God, would our affections be stirred for you? Would our minds be fixed on you and on you alone this morning? God, we give this time to you. And I say you'd use it to form us more to the image of your son. In your name we pray. Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning, fellowship. Hey, we have been getting many, many inquiries from y'all if there's anything that we're going to be doing for the people of Ukraine. And while we don't have any global workers uh, specifically working in that country, we have been reaching out to some of our relationships in neighboring countries, and we're looking at how we can help out the refugees. And so starting today, we are going to open up our disaster relief account. So if you feel led to give to that, uh, I'd like to invite you to do that. You just go on the Fellowship's giving page and, and scroll down and look for the disaster relief and we'll keep you updated on, on what we're doing to help out the people of Ukraine. And speaking of refugees, um, we have a couple that was sent out from Fellowship Fayetteville who is working with refugees. It's Jordan and Micah Smith. And we want you to get to know all of our workers, but they are working with refugees in Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, a very cool ministry. And so they just like to get to know you. They like to be able to share a little bit uh, about their ministry. They're gonna be in the foyer, in the connections booth. And so we'd love for you after the service is over, just drop by, say hello, hear about the incredible ministry that they're doing here in the States, but working with refugees from all over the world. Next is, we finally got our books of John in. We're gonna study uh, John starting next week. And when I say these are limited edition, they are limited edition. We only got 300. We will be getting more, but if you want the ones that are Hot off the press, they're $7. Uh, we're selling them in the foyer, so just go there, uh, and we'll get those for you. You can get the early release. If you want it, they're gonna be a hot item since there's only 300 right now. You can sell them on eBay for a profit uh, if you'd like. And so whatever your motivation is, I encourage you to go pick up one now. Hey, uh, you've probably heard us talk a little bit about we've adopted a translation project we're working in an area, Africa, to, to get the Bible translated in a language about 30 million people speak who can't read the Word of God in their own language. And last night, uh, and probably some of you got to, got to attend the Pioneer Bible Translators Banquet, and there we got to meet a very special lady whose life was changed through the Word of God. And we just wanted to invite her up here this morning to tell a little bit of her story. Perusa, would you come on up? Assalamu alaikum. I grew up in a Muslim home. Devout, my grandparents were devout Muslim during the Soviet Union, and I viewed God as an angry judge who was ready to judge me 
And I knew that on judgment day, he would weigh my sins and my good deeds and whatever outweighed would decide my eternal life. So I knew that I was doomed to go to hell at the age of seven. But I started studying English after high school. During my high school years, the Soviet Union fell apart. And the void that was in my heart from the Arab, praying the Arabic prayers um, came back to me when I started praying them again. Because the Arabic prayers are not a communication with God. They are written Arabic. I didn't know what I was saying. So I sought God, and I wanted to be in his presence. And I met some American people who told me that there was this book that I could read about God. I started reading the Bible, and the stories in it were amazing. I had heard the names of all the prophets, of Abraham and David and Solomon and Noah, but I did not know who they were. I, when I started reading the Bible from the very beginning, from the Old Testament about creation, all the stories made sense. And I saw that God is not an angry judge, but he loves humanity. And believe it or not, Leviticus is not a punishment from God. It is a way for us, the rebellious people, to try and make our way to him. It proves that we cannot make our own way to God. And I knew that because I grew up in a culture where we still make sacrifices. There are not enough sacrifices in the world for the sins of one person, let alone all of humanity. So when I got to New Testament, Jesus made sense. It made sense that God had to give a part of himself to save us. To my Muslim mind, I was shocked that God would send himself to spare me death. But that is how much he loves us. And I wanted this love so much. I wanted the forgiveness of sins. But I was afraid because my dad had told me that he would kill me if I become a Christian. So I had to count the cost. I had to see whether God would be faithful if my family disowned me. I had to see if I would truly be in the presence of God. And how would I know that unless I had the promises of God? And I read about what God said, that he would provide a family for me if my mother and father forsake me. And he would provide for me when death comes, because he has overcome death. That Jesus has won the victory. And when I die, whether by my father's hand or by natural way, I would enter his presence. The eternal life that I would gain by believing in Jesus begins now. And death is only a door. So one day when a friend told me that Jesus is for everyone, that he came for all of humanity, I'm like, how would I know? God again spoke to me. He said, and now the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And I was all men. I was Uzbek. Christ did not come only for Russians or Americans. Apparently, he came for all men. And God promised that if I believed in him, I would have eternal life, that I would have peace that this world cannot offer. And when I, my friend said, what are you going to do with this gift that God is offering you? I said, 
the creator of this universe, the king of kings, the Lord of all wants to be my all, how can I refuse? So that day, I prayed for God to forgive my sins through Jesus. But I knew that I had to go and tell my dad because I had not become a good girl on my own. That it's God's miraculous work in my heart that made me a new creation. I was afraid. I said, God, I am afraid to tell my dad. And he said, Faruza, I have not given you a spirit of fear. I have given you a spirit of power and love and sound mind. You go and tell him. And I will speak through you. So I did. My dad was angry. He said, I had shamed my family, that I had brought such shame that I could not be his daughter anymore, that I'd betrayed my religion, that I'd betrayed my people. But I told him, Father, I cannot be a truer daughter to you than I am now. Your blood flows in my veins. And he said, no, you go. I am going to kick you out. I'll have a funeral for you. I'm going to call my your um, grandpa. So I did not know whether to be happy or not. I was happy to not be killed, but I also was very sad that I wouldn't have a family anymore. So as I was getting ready to leave my home, he said, no, I can't live with this shame. I have to kill you as I promised. I have to keep my word. So he went to get his knife and he says to me, Faruza, he brings the knife and says, if I kill you now, will this Jesus spare your life? I said, I don't know, dad. But I do know that as he promised, if I die now, I will go to see him. I will be in his presence. I will see God face to face. But if I don't, I will live on this earth preaching the good news of Jesus Christ until I take my last breath. He was shocked. He did not know of anyone who was not afraid of death. But Jesus had given me the confidence that he is Lord of life and he is Lord of death. He is Lord of all. So I committed my life that day again to follow him. And soon after, I got swept into the world of Bible translation. There was no full Bible in my language then. I had read the Bible in English and in Russian. And when my teammate asked me to consider joining the team, I said, no, I cannot translate the Bible because you see, Muslims believe that Christians have changed the Bible. I fully believe that if I worked on it, I would change it. I'd be responsible for changing the word of God. And I did not want those curses in Revelation to be on my head either. It says that if I add anything to it or remove anything from it, everything, all that's written in that book will be on my head. So when I was asked to go and pray about it, I went to God and said, God, I'm not translating the Bible. I learned that God speaks with us because he did clearly. Even before I started following him, he said, Faruza, how do you know me? I read your word in English and in Russian. How will your people know me if you do not translate the Bible? I said, pick someone else. He said, nope, I pick you today for this. I said, God, I don't want to change it. He said, do you think your mere human being can change my word? I am powerful enough to preserve my word. Now you go do your job and I will do mine. So since that day, since I was 18, I have been following my Lord and who has been faithful to me 
who has not taken away the joy of my salvation, no matter what happened in life for the past 20 plus years, almost 30, he has been my faithful Lord. And he has fulfilled every promise that he ever gave me, including the fact that I was not able to change his word. I did join my team. We translated the Bible. It took us 22 years to do it, but we have it. And that is the Bible in my language. He is good. He is faithful. And he wants every person in this world to say to him, I love you in his heart language. In my language, we say I love you like this. I see you good. And he wants every person on this earth to hear him say to them in their heart language, I see you good. And I want to thank you for your efforts in this work. Thank you for bringing so many more people closer to hearing God say, I see you good. Hey, thank you so much for sharing. Hey, I do wanna ask you real quick. Yes. We love languages and culture and diversity in this body. Would you pray us out in of respect? Course. I will, thank you. Ey khuda, ota janam. Ozinge min qatlash korsan, biz khudaimisan. Sen biz yaxsh korsan, sen najat karimisan. Sen har daim biz blansan, biz tashlab koymisan. Muqaddas kitabin o sozine biz gebergani uchun min qatlash korsan ge khudaim. Har bir insan sen najatin haqda ishtsin. Xushkabarin ulardan darxtut magen ota janam. Sandan so'rayman, butun dunyoda tinchlik o'rnatgan, ayniqsa hozirgi paytda Ukrainada bo'layotgan voqealar o'zing ko'rib turibsan, Xudoyim tinchlik olib kelgan. Har bir rahbarga, har bir mamlakatni yurtboshisiga o'zing Xudoyim donolik bergan. Sandan so'rayman, otajonim, seni shohliging kelsin, seni irodang bo'lsin. Iso Masih nomi butun dunyo bo'ylab yangrasin. Mana shu birodarlarim bilan ham bo'lgan Xudoyim, o'zing ularning yuraklarini ochgin, o'zing bizni senga yaqin bo'lishimizga yordam bergin. Bular hammasini Isa Masihning muqaddas nomi bilan so'rayman. Amin. What an incredible story. May we be men and women who count the cost in the same way of giving our lives to the King. Hey, we're going to sing a song we sang a couple weeks ago. It's still probably going to be new for you. But once you catch on, I want you to sing it with us. It's about God being our hope. So would you stand with us? Let's sing this. Oh, my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday is gone. Oh, my sins are forgiven. I've been washed by the blood. Let's sing this together. I've been held. I've been held by the Savior. I fell fire from above. I've been down to the I ain't the same, the prodigal return. That's why I'm singing, oh, my hope is in Jesus. Thank God my yesterday. 
I'm no stranger to the prison. I've worn shackles and chains, but I've been freed and In His living 
Christ the Lord upon the tree in the stead of ruined sinners hangs the lamb in victory oh, see the price of our redemption see the father's plan unfold bringing many sons to glory this morning God would you teach us from your word that we would leave here different Lord as your sons and daughters would you continue to transform us more into your image conform us into your image Father teach us say let me pray amen can grab a seat good morning fellowship Fayetteville how are we a little sleepy today losing the hour um I'm Garland good to be with y'all um I think oftentimes when we, when we approach the scripture, when we approach Jesus, I think it can, it can sometimes happen that we, we have a caricature of Jesus as kind of the Jesus meek and mild, the Jesus who, who's a fan of us and he wants us to, to be happy and he wants us to, to find what makes us happy and go pursue that and live our truth and, and do our lives and he's kind of for us. Now, that's true. He's definitely for us. We can, we can see that all over Scripture. But when we, when we approach Jesus in that, in that way and in that way only, and then when we go read some of the things he says, we're going to see that he makes some rather surprising, if not shocking, demands about our life. Like, let me just expose you and me to some of the things that Jesus says about our life. Like, hear these words from the king. He says, if you want to be in with me, you want to be my follower, you want to call yourself a Christian, anyone who wants to do that, he says, you have to, you got to deny yourself. 
It says that person needs to take up their cross, an instrument of humiliation and shame, and then come and follow me. You want to be in? You want to check the box Christian? Deny yourself. Take up their cross and follow me. He'll say elsewhere in Matthew's gospel. I'm just taking these out of Matthew's gospel, by the way. We can look at the other ones. But just in Matthew, he says, anyone who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Later on in Matthew's gospel, uh, a man will approach Jesus and say, Jesus, I want to be in on, on your kingdom and what you're doing here in the world. I want to, I want to be a part of it. And I've tried to be good my whole life, like I've, I've tried to follow the, the Torah and follow the rules, and I've done a pretty good job. What do I got to do? And Jesus looks at him. This is not how you like win friends and influence people. Look at what Jesus says. He says, if you want to be perfect, you want in, then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and then you really will be rich, and then come follow me. Now look at the response. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he was wealthy. And then the disciples are confused by this. They're confused in the moment. Jesus will say, take my yoke upon you. Take it and learn from me. Jesus makes startling demands of our life. I mean, and not just in kind of this big abstract kind of way, but in the weeds of our life. He says, follow me. Give everything up for me. I'm the king of your life. Bend the knee to me. Do as I say. And I recognize that I'm sitting in the south of America, and that is potentially the opposite of how all of us have been trained to think about life. Our country began with the rejection of kings, and we've codified this even in our, our art. Remember Invictus. It concludes this way, this great poem. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. Look at the religious overtones of that. And here's how he concludes it. I am the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. No kings. Nobody tells me what to do, how to live, how to be. I'm the master of my fate. Or a more recent poet, Elsa from Frozen, says it this way. You have the... Rules and regulations of Arendelle, this traditional way of living with the shackles of his expectations. And what does she do? She says, I gotta let all that go. There's no right, no wrong, no rules for me. That's freedom. In fact, one of our states even has it as their state motto, live free or die. Love this. We've codified it in our legal system. We said at the heart of liberty, at the heart of freedom is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. That's what it means to truly be free. The opposite of restriction. Get those out of my way. I hear so many people, both outside the church and within the church, have this problem with Christianity. Maybe you've thought it. I don't like Christianity because it's a religion of restriction. I mean, it's telling me how I gotta live, who I can love, what, what sex looks like, what I do with my money, what I do with my time. It tells me I've gotta go to church, I've gotta read this old book. There's too many restrictions. It limits freedom. It limits creativity. It stifles all of that. And we saw a couple weeks ago the great 
unpardonable sin of the postmodern culture is to tell anyone else how they must live their life. And then here comes Jesus saying, I'm the king, follow me and do as I say. We're gonna need to reconstruct what this looks like to follow Jesus. Because Jesus is going to grate against our sensibilities. Whether you're progressive or conservative, old or young, he's gonna push against us. He's gonna demand from us. And as we conclude this series this morning, we're just gonna kind of use this outline as we work through it. What does it look like to obey Jesus? What does it look like to follow him as the king? We're gonna see the what of following Jesus, the why of following Jesus, and the how. So we're gonna reconstruct this idea. We gotta see the what, the why, and the how. If you have your Bibles, go with me, Matthew chapter 11. We're gonna camp out here. We're gonna spend most of our time uh, in this passage. We're gonna look at that second point at length today. But let's look at Matthew 11, uh, verse 28 to 30. Now, this is a famous passage. This is a really famous passage of Scripture, one of the most famous verses in all of Matthew's gospel. I bet some of you have this on a poster or a plate or a coffee cup somewhere in your house, all right? It's a, it's a, it's a sweet passage. We come to the passage and we, we can read it and it almost, it almost reads sweet or saccharine to us. But we gotta push through that just for a moment. I'm happy if you have it on your house on a poster or, or a coffee mug or something. But when we see it only as the sweetness of the passage, we actually miss the demands of the passage. There are two commands in this passage. They're, they're imperative in the Greek language. They carry the force of a command, and here they are. Here's the two commands. The first is this, take. Jesus says take. It's the, it's the word to, to, to lift up or to carry with you. Take my yoke, he says. You have to take it. It's a command. And the second is where we get our word for disciple. It's the word manfano in Greek. Learn from me. Become a follower of me, a, a modern way to understand it might be become my, my apprentice, do as I do, go where I tell you to go, watch me, and then follow. Two commands, take my yoke, and the second one, you must learn from me, follow me. Now, because I'm, I'm assuming most of us didn't grow up around oxen and drive plows, what is a yoke, all right? The yoke is that wooden contraption that you would put over two oxen. You would, you would strap the, the, the wood to one side, and this would be an ox that has learned to walk straight and follow the plow driver. And you would, you would attach to that a, a more novice, younger ox who hasn't learned. And that piece of wood would force that younger ox to walk straight. It's an instrument of restriction. It forces that ox to go the direction that the driver wants them to go. Are you hearing what Jesus is saying? He says, that, take that on yourself. Take my yoke and place it around your neck and then come and learn from me, come and follow me. The what of following Jesus could not be clearer. Hear me, he, he demands all. Like all of your life, all of your time, all of your attention, all of your loyalties, he demands 100% obedience. And as I got to thinking about the demands of what Jesus is asking, then I started looking at my own life and lives of people in, in, my, in my community, and I started thinking, is that what my obedience looks like? And if not, what does my obedience look like? 
And I, and I, I thought of several instances of where this goes wrong in my life. And maybe this is similar to some of you. So obedience done wrong. Jesus says, take my yoke and follow me. And I looked at my life and I went, I don't see that. In fact, oftentimes what I see is selective obedience. What do I mean, what do I mean by that? Selective obedience is when we go, all right, all right, Jesus, Bible, like the stuff that lines up with what I already think, what I already believe, I'm in on that stuff. But that other stuff that looks archaic or doesn't line up with kind of how I think or how I view the world, I'm out on that. And by the way, we can apply selective obedience both sides of the aisle. We could say, you know what, I like what the Bible says about love and tolerance and grace and all that stuff, but I don't like its demands on my sexuality. I'm gonna disregard that part. We've moved past that now, right? We don't need an ancient book telling us who we can sleep with, who we can love. It's selective obedience. Or maybe the opposite side may be true. We may say, you know, I like the Bible's morality, but I don't like its demands on how I treat the poor. I don't like its demands on what I do with my money. I don't like its demands on reaching across into the hard places in this world. That's a little rough. It's selective obedience. And when I read Jesus, I don't see him going, let's pick and choose the things you like and we'll be good with the rest. It's not what he asks. The second obedience gone wrong as I see it in my life is often I, I think I come to Jesus with a feelings-based obedience. What that looks like is I go, you know what? God wouldn't want me to do something if my heart wasn't in it. If I didn't feel it that morning, like I, it would be cold and legalistic for me to read my Bible today. I'm not feeling it. I'm out. Or it'd be cold and it would be cold and legalistic to go to church today. I'm just not feeling it. Or cold and legalistic to share the gospel with this person in the office or share the gospel with this person at the coffee shop. I'm, I'm not feeling it today. It's a feelings-based obedience. If you think about it, we've largely done with our spirituality what we've done with love in our culture. If it's not a feeling, almost an accidental thing that happens to us, then you get away from it. We wouldn't want to be in a loveless relationship or a loveless spirituality, a feelingsless spirituality. And I don't read Jesus going, when you feel it, when you had a good cup of coffee and slept good, then we'll start, we'll start talking about obeying me. I don't see that in Jesus. The third is this. We, we approach Jesus with a performance-based or a guilt-based obedience. Here's what this looks like. We feel this sense of something off in us or we feel expectations from our spouse or from our church or from our parachurch leader or we feel this sense of obligation for our kids' sake. And so this sense of guilt drives why we obey Jesus. Or maybe it's a sense of performance. We wanna have the good exterior life for people around us, but there's no, there's, no, there's no gratitude in it. There's no love in it. It's just this cold, sterile, performance-based obedience. And here's the problem. It almost always goes to one of two places. One, you actually can perform really well. You're just a moral person. And oftentimes it leads to a cold insensitivity to those that struggle, a judgmentalism at how other people live. The other place it leads is a self-pitying shame because we feel like we never perform well enough. And we, we just can't get out of that sense of guilt. Selective obedience, feelings-based obedience, guilt-based obedience. And lastly, 
I just got to be honest. There's a lot of time in my life where I just go, I don't really care. I'm living my life. I'm doing what I want to do. And all that church Jesus stuff, it's, I can dismiss that to Sunday. We just don't really care. And, and maybe for you, it's not that posture. Maybe you go, I've, I got saved when I was seven. I walked the aisle. The rest of it, I mean, what difference does it make? Or maybe worse yet, you're just working for the weekend or working for the next bottle of wine or working for the next golf round or working for the next vacation. You're just trying to get through this thing. And these demands of Jesus, they might as well be a million miles away for you. Jesus comes in and he says, you gotta deny yourself and take up a cross and then come and follow me. And it's a present tense verb, an ongoing activity. C.S. Lewis, in, in, in summarizing all this, says this. Jesus says, give me all. I don't just want this much of your time and this much of your money or this much of your work so you can have all the rest. I want you. Your weekends, your wallet, your screen, your love life. I want you and I want all. It's the, it's the what of following Jesus. It's, it's a startling demand. And if you and I haven't come face to face with it ever or in a long time, that's the point of this morning. It's for us to recognize what Jesus asks. But if we know the what, but not the why, then it could almost certainly lead to this sort of begrudging obedience to God. I know what I'm supposed to do, but I'm not exactly sure why. We have to get the why clear. Otherwise, it'll, it'll lead to a, a dangerous place. So remember, we've codified in our culture what freedom looks like. Freedom is the opposite of restriction. Freedom is me getting to decide how I want to live my life, me getting to decide what I want to be and how I want to live and all that. Can I give, can I give three objections to this idea of freedom? Just, just I'm gonna give three. So, so lean in here, especially if you're here and maybe this is the way you've adopted freedom. And when you approach the Bible, you say, I don't know if I like all that. Just lean in and listen. Three, can I give three objections? The first objection is this. Existentially, this is not true at all. Existentially, most of what you believe, the way you live, most of that comes from your genetic code, where you were raised, who raised you, the friends you adopted as you grew up, and the media influences you allow into your life. You're actually a product largely of those things. Like, let me give you an example. I wanted my truth to be Garland Autry is an NBA basketball player. Don't laugh. I was really good, okay? That's what I wanted my truth to be, and I worked hard at it, but I had a genetic problem. Like, there was no way that I was gonna be in the NBA. A lot of how, who I am and who you are is the product of your genetic code, where you were raised, who raised you, and the friends you've chosen to put in your life. So existentially, we're not nearly as free as we think we are. Now, the second objection to this idea of freedom. Logically, if we, if we adopt the idea that freedom is the opposite of restriction, the, the second objection is that those are not mutually exclusive. Logically, oftentimes, in order to experience the beauty and spontaneity and freedom that we so desire, we actually have to undergo restriction. We have to take on a yoke, in other words. Let me give you an example from my life. Uh, we have two dogs, 
they're both very old. Uh, we got them when we got married, and so they're, they're aging dogs. And uh, a couple of years ago, um, it was really hot, and they were outside, and they were panting, and I felt bad for them. And so I thought, I can take them in to get them shaved, um, but that's gonna cost me money, and then I have to do it over and over and over again, or I can buy dog clippers, and I can shave them. I mean, how hard can it be? So I ordered some, and they came in, and I was surprised to find out that this, these dog shearer things, they came with a rather long, extensive book explaining how to use them, the instructions, what they're called. And I did what a lot of people do when you get instructions. What do you do with them? You throw them away, right? You don't use them. And so I got these instructions on how hard could this be? And I began uh, to go out and sh- to kind of shave one of my two dogs. I didn't realize that in the instructions was a long set of restrictions on what you're supposed to do with particular fur types and how clean the fur has to be, otherwise it's not gonna work. I could have used those restrictions. I could have used that yoke because this is what happened when I got to shaving my dog. By the way, we never fixed it. We just let her go like this. For like three months until it grew back, that was our animal, all right? Now, there was a rule in there. It, it had a lengthy thing about this kind of fur and how you're supposed to shave it and how clean it has to be, and I didn't read any of it. And I made a fool of myself. Actually, I made a fool of this animal, all right? This, this, she looks like a fool. I was fine with it. Um, now, let me, that's a negative example of this gone wrong. Let me give you a positive example. If you've ever tried to learn an instrument, and some of you have, you try to learn an instrument, you must undergo the yoke. Practice. Like you have to learn to form the shapes. Like I, I used to lead worship here and uh, I had people ask me, hey, teach me how to play the guitar, and I would always tell them, all right, if you wanna learn how to play the guitar, you need to buy a guitar and for a month, you need to come home every day and for an hour, you have to just play like two, the same two chords just so your fingers can develop the calluses to not hurt and to bleed, and it's painful. But if you don't, if you don't undergo that restriction, if you don't undergo that pain, you actually will never be able to play. And most people that try to learn the guitar, they never get past that first month. Now, you can imagine how stupid it would be, how foolish it would be for somebody to go, I wanna have the freedom to play the guitar. I wanna be in the worship band this week. They've never gone through the yoke of having to learn. You could come up here and take this guitar even. And you can even begin to, to play, but it won't sound good. You won't make music. Freedom and restriction are not mutually exclusive. Now, could it be, lean in with me here, could it be that when Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, learn from me, what if Jesus has a way to be human, a way to be human that actually leads to beauty and joy? Like I used sexuality earlier, let me use it again. Let's go, let's go back there. Could it be that, G, that the, Bible, the Bible presents a way to have sexual intimacy that actually leads to sexual intimacy thriving and vulnerability thriving, the beauty of oneness in marriage? Could it be that within the context of a covenant, Sexual intimacy is able to be expressed and produce more closeness, more vulnerability, because the covenant protects it. And what happens? Could it be that outside of that context, now sexual intimacy will always be stunted? It will never lead to the kind of intimacy and vulnerability and connection we actually crave. Why? 
because the covenant, the covenant enables both parties to truly be their true selves, to let their guard down and be truly known. And in that context, intimacy can flourish. Outside of that context, it's, it's a way to keep the other person interested, a way to keep things spicy, a way to keep them looking at me and not looking at someone else. Could it be that when Jesus says, take my yoke, he has a way to beauty and a way to joy? That's not looking to destroy our freedom, but enhance it. Take money. Could it be that Jesus doesn't want money to be the thing that defines you, the place where you get your security, you you have your comfort and know you matter, but instead, or, or by the way, the thing you're constantly anxious about, but instead Jesus comes along in Matthew 6 and said, seek my kingdom, and all these other things will be added to you. Could it be that he wants to actually set us free from the anxiety and the worry of money? What if that's true? Like, could it be that Jesus has a kind of people in mind as he constitutes a family of followers that hunger and thirst for justice, for dikaiosune, for rightness, God's rightness in the world? We live in a culture clamoring for justice and equality. And could it be that Jesus, all the way back in Matthew 5, when his, we call it the Beatitudes, already said, this is what a community that thirsts for justice looks like. What if all along, Jesus had in mind the kind of joy that we all crave? That's our second objection. Our third objection is this. Experientially, all of us are yoked to something. All of us are yoked to something. Something becomes our master. Here are the words of Jesus just a few chapters earlier. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also what you give your loyalty to, your attention to, your time to, your devotion to, you'll give everything away to that and it will by necessity own you. You'll be yoked to it. Look at his example he gives us. He says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, he says. Experientially, all of us are yoked to something all of us, that thing that you say, I must have this or I don't measure up. This will give me my sense of security and joy. I have to have that or I won't have comfort. That ends up becoming your master and you will be yoked. Your heart will be tethered to it whether you like it or not. It will necessarily enslave you. Like if you said, my kid's success That's where my kids' performance, that's where I know I matter. I'm giving my life to that. Then you will smother your kids with expectations or you will be racked with fear at the minute they disappoint you. If you say, my reputation, what people think about me, my good name, that's how I know I matter. I I want people to like me, then you'll run into codependency. You will be tethered, yoked to the opinions of other people around you and you'll be constantly wondering, Was that good enough? Was that funny enough? Was that sexy enough? Did they like that? Did they think that was good? You're tethering your value to the opinion of people around you. If you said my my next promotion or our company getting bought or the number that I have in the bank account, that's what's gonna give me my sense of security, 
comfort. I'll know I've arrived when I hit that number, when we sell, or when I get that next raise. Then you're tethering your value. You're tethering your significance to the title on the desk. We can do this with our body. Like, I I know that I matter when I have this number on the scale, or when I have this kind of, people find me alluring, and you'll die a thousand deaths as you age and your body changes. We can do it with political parties, we can do it with political leaders, we can do it with political ideologies. We tether ourselves, we yoke ourselves. All of us are yoked to something. They necessarily enslave us. Here's the crazy part. Jesus knows this. He drives at it all the time. And he knows that when, he knows all other slave masters they ultimately, they overpromise, they underdeliver, they break our hearts, they crush us under the weight of those expectations. They leave us broken and burdened and weary and exhausted and always comparing and anxious and fearful. And Jesus says, if that's you, then come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. You know what I'll give you? Rest for your soul. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your soul. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. R.C. Sproul, reflecting on this, says, the only freedom a person ever has is when he or she becomes a slave to Christ. Jesus is the only king that says, you bend the knee to me, but I'll set you free. All others say, bend the knee to me, and they take, and they take, and they take. And Jesus says, Bend the knee to me, and I'll actually give you your life back. Our first big why is that true rest is found in Jesus. But can I give you a fast second one? These words are not in a vacuum. You need to hear this, especially Jesus followers in the room. This invitation from Jesus is not in a vacuum. It's actually a part of Jesus announcing his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. The Gospel of Matthew, Jesus walks onto the scene and says, The kingdom of heaven has come near, so turn, repent, and come follow me. He's inaugurating what it looks like to be the people of God who bring his goodness and justice to bear on the earth. It's no wonder that the last words in Matthew's gospel are these. Jesus says, I'm the king. I have all authority in heaven and on earth, so go out there and make followers of me, calling them to identify with me in baptism and teach them to obey everything I've commanded. Here's the second big why. It is through this kind of people and obedient to Jesus people that he actually means to change the world. If you're a Jesus follower in the room, hear me. Christians, it is through your faithful obedience to him that he wants to change this city and this country and our world. The daily obeying of him, creating a people, is how he means to change the world. New Testament scholar says it this way, when Jesus, with Jesus, God's rescue operation has been put into full, full effect once for all. Hear this, we are all invited, no summoned, to discover through following Jesus that this new world is indeed a place of justice and spirituality and relationship and beauty. This is the key line, that we are not only to enjoy it as such, it's not just about our finding rest in him, but to work at bringing it to birth on earth as in heaven. 
In listening to Jesus, we discover whose voice it is that has echoed around the hearts and minds of the human race all along. Or as Jesus said, when we do this, we're like, a, we're like the light of the world. It's a city built on a hill. So let your light shine that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. The what of following Jesus, the why, and the how. The how will be really fast, trust me. Here's the how. You and I have to come face to face, maybe even this morning. I loved your story. Thank you for sharing that because that was inspirational to me. Do you believe this? Do you really buy it? Have you seen all other things that you could yoke to? All other masters, have you seen them all lacking? Is it working? You found yourself just exhausted. Until we come face to face with the reality that Jesus is the only one who can demand we follow him, but then lead us to joy, we will always struggle to trust and obey him. Do you buy it? The second how. Remember what C.S. Lewis said? He says, I want you all. The second how is you've got to look in your own heart. Where is there selective obedience or feelings-based obedience, just flat-out apathy? Where do you think you're just trying to kind of perform for your people around you, your spouse, your kids, your parents, whatever that looks like for you? Jesus says, I want your all. I want how you treat alcohol, what comes out of your mouth, how you file your taxes, I want your work time, your hobby time. I want your vacation time. I want your Sundays. I want all. Your mornings, your nights, your parenting, all. Now, to do this, you're going to have to learn what he says. We talked two weeks about the study, how to study the Bible. You're going to have to do that to understand what your king asks of you. You've got to spend time in it. You've got to read it. You need to do that in the context of community. We can learn how to interpret it together and then apply it together with accountability in our lives. First how is we have to come face to face with he really is better. The second how is we have to recognize that he's, in, he's asked our all. And the third is this. Here's how we close. Notice what Jesus says in verse 30. Don't miss verse 30. He says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He invites us to take his yoke upon us and exchanges our heavy yoke, the burdens of our brokenness and pain and sin and expectations, the burden of all of the idols that we've run to. Our heavy yoke is placed on him. Literally, he carries a piece of wood up the hill to Golgotha and it's heavy so that you and I could get his light on. There's no other king like Jesus who lays down his life for his people. So how do we follow him for the long haul? We don't pull ourselves up and try harder. He means for us to obey, but we obey having tasted the gospel, having experienced his goodness and grace towards us. And it moves us from begrudging submission to gratitude. As Paul would say, offer our lives as living sacrifices because of all that he's done for us. The what, the why, and the how. Only in the gospel does it unlock the power to do this for the long haul. And here's how we, how we end this morning. Uh, we're gonna invite just 
Some of my best friends up here, they, they're demonstrating for us in real time. You've demonstrated in your story for us in real time what this looks like. Uh, this is a, a bittersweet day for, for us here, and I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna stop talking because I'll start crying. So you, you talk, Clark. Garland, hey, Garland, thank you for bringing this series from the college service into this space. Has this not been a great series as we get ourselves ready for John? And if, if you're a shepherding elder or current elder right now in the room, could you come up here uh, for a few minutes as well? We're going to pray over Kyle and Elise McCarthy. Um, uh, six months ago, they began a journey raising support, fundraising. Many of you have joined their support team. And tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. at XNA, they get on a plane and they go to Japan. The doors are open, and we're super thrilled about this. And uh, we're, we're sending um, our very best. Um, in all sense of that word, we're excited about uh, who they've become, uh, the role that they've played here at Fellowship and cell groups, community groups, um, as part of our staff team. And uh, these are tears of sadness and joy. And uh, we wanted you to be a part of this moment. Um, this is one of the reasons we exist as a church, to take the gospel to those who have not yet heard. And so we're going to take some time and pray for them. And so if you could, would you stand with me? And I would like you to just take your, your left or your right hand and just put it out in front of you, and we're going to pray over them as we end our service this morning. I love you guys. Father, in the name of Jesus, I want to pray uh, for, for a flourishing marriage in Japan that screams the gospel in the way they interact with one another. God, I pray that Kyle and Elise would um, be proficient in successful in their language acquisition as they connect with the local people there. Father, I pray that you would give them incredible uh, sense of team chemistry. God, I pray that you would give them joy as they pour over your word and find strength from it and abide in you. And God, I pray that you would be their provider in all things, friendship, intimacy with one another, financial provision. Father, would you um, produce fruit this spawns a movement of churches that multiply the glory of God across that nation, Japan. God, we entrust you to them. In the name of Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you, fellowship. If you have a need yourself for prayer this morning, just so you know, our prayer room is available to your right, to my left. We'd love to pray for you. Thank you for being with us, and we look forward to starting John with you next week. Have a great week, fellowship. I've been held by the Savior I felt fire from above I've been down to the river I ain't the same, the prodigal return 